Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hello, I'm Julia Chatterley, and we begin today with breaking news. After 14 days on the run... Escaped murderer Danilo Cavalcante has been captured. This is brand new video showing him in handcuffs, surrounded by officers just moments after he was captured this morning. Sources tell CNN that he was taken into custody without incident in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Now, we are awaiting a press conference with police in around half an hour's time, and we will bring you that live the moment it begins. For now, we'll bring you up to speed with some of the other news stories today, too. Russia will emerge victorious in the fight to punish the evil forces, quote. That was the message delivered by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to President Vladimir Putin at a state dinner in Russia. Kim vowed to establish a new era of 100-year friendship between the two nations. The Kremlin says talks between the leaders have been, quote, very substantive. U.S. officials have long warned that those talks could focus on weapons sales to Moscow. And uh, Paula Honkaks now joins us on this story. Paula, no documents signed, but clearly strong friendship, the message that these two gentlemen were sending. And, of course, the big fear now in the West is that this will lead to some exchange of, of weaponry, if not more. Well, that's right, Julia. No documents, no press conferences, no communique. None of that was expected from these two leaders, though, to be fair. And it's up to the West now to try and guess exactly what deal, if any, has been done. But the day did start for Kim Jong-un as he met with Vladimir Putin uh, at the uh, Vostochny Cosmodrome Space Centre. So this was really his chance to see a successful space programme uh, that Russia uh, has created, bearing in mind that uh, that North Korea is struggling with its own. And we did hear from uh, Vladimir Putin when he was asked by journalists whether he was going to help Kim Jong-un uh, to be able to launch satellites and rockets. He said that is why we are here. So he made it very clear uh, that what the US officials that we have been speaking to were concerned about, that there would be sharing of satellite technology is in fact the case although we don't know exactly what was shared we did hear though from one uh, Russian reporter uh, who was uh, there saying that he did ask a lot of very detailed questions Julia yes Paul Hancock's there thank you so much for that 
Now, Ukraine launched an extensive missile attack on Russian-occupied Crimea overnight, striking a naval shipyard in Sevastopol and damaging two warships. That at least according to Russian officials. Melissa Bell joins us now from Kyiv on this. Melissa, we've seen drone attacks and marine drones specifically on Sevastopol in the past, but not cruise missiles, at least according to the Russians. So this is a step up. just under three weeks ago that we saw that first ground landing that had happened since this war began. Overnight, what we're hearing is a considerable amount of cruise missiles. In all, we understand 10 were launched towards Crimea. And what the Russians say is that there were also unmanned uh, boats that were targeting uh, Black Sea Fleet ships as well in that overnight attack. Uh, of the 10 cruise missiles launched, what we understand is that three uh, managed to cause some damage. The rest were intercepted by Russian air defences. And what they hit, uh, Julia, is a shipyard in what is uh, the biggest port uh, for the Black Sea Fleet uh, in uh, Crimea. And that shipyard, what we understand from Russian bloggers who followed these things from their side, uh, is that there was a fire for some time and that damage was caused uh, to a couple of Russian ships there. Now, we've been hearing uh, from uh, uh, the, one of the uh, members of President Zelensky's cabinet just a short while ago saying, look, it isn't an apparent reference to these overnight attacks, not claiming them directly, but suggesting uh, more and more clearly, and this is another thing we've seen Ukraine more and more clearly, uh, implying that it is behind these attacks. And what he said was that it isn't just about the sanctions pressure that is designed, Julia, of course, to help starve uh, Russia's industrial military complex uh, of its oxygen or what it needs to function. It is also about hitting the logistics uh, of what allow Russia to carry on uh, uh, with this war of aggression. So a very clear uh, mention there of precisely what, have, what has been behind these attacks that we've seen uh, more and more clearly claimed. And that is, as you say, uh, so many drone attacks recently that have targeted Russian airfields, for instance, within the Russian Federation itself. Uh, what we saw this time uh, were cruise missile attacks targeting very clearly the infrastructure, that shipyard in Sevastopol that allows uh, Russian forces to continue patrolling those seas. And it's a reminder, of course, Julia, that the point of this counteroffensive, so much of the aim of this southern counteroffensive, is about trying to cut off uh, those Russian logistical abilities uh, that allow it to continue defending Crimea. This is all about Crimea, and this is something the Ukrainians are reminding us about uh, more and more clearly. Yeah, I don't know an in detail about Ukraine's cruise missile production capabilities. Uh, Melissa, but obviously there's a grey area here because there's a lot of conditions attached to NATO-provided weaponry that it can't be used outside of Ukrainian territory. Of course, Crimea is, is Russian-occupied. Um, there are certain questions raised by this, perhaps, which is also why the Ukrainians are being relatively couched over what's taking place. That's right. And I think it's important to remember, Julia, in that context, how even as it has been waging this war and defending itself, Ukraine has been getting its own uh, weapons system up to speed. Drones, cruise missiles, long-range uh, artillery, long-range rockets. Uh, this is very much a part of its war effort. And what we've seen is a determined effort to bring that increased war uh, capability that Ukraine's been building uh, directly uh, to Russia. But I think it's an important distinction that you make. Uh, there is very clearly an agreement that's been made between Ukraine and its partners that whatever Western weaponry it has uh, will not be used against Russian soil. Uh, and I think it's an important distinction to make, Julia. Mm. Melissa Bell, great to have you with us. Thank you there from Kyiv.
Meanwhile, new inflation numbers in the United States show that consumer prices rose 0.6% in August, with rising gas prices accounting for over half of that increase. Now, if you strip away the volatile food and energy prices, that's called core inflation, and that slowed to 4.3% from 4.7%, an indication that the Federal Reserve's 11 rate hikes are working their way through the economy. Rahel Solomon joins us now to break this down. This is the importance of not just looking at an annual number and comparisons that are made over a 12-month period, which actually showed inflation rising, but to look at the month-on-month, which continues this trend lower, despite those rising fuel prices. Exactly, Julia. This is a report that really indicates that the devil is in the details, as they say. So as you said, so headline inflation did tick up a bit, largely in line with expectations, but ticking up to a level and at a rate that we haven't seen since June of 2022. But most of that was energy, as you pointed out. And that, of course, is because of what we're seeing with production cuts with OPEC. That said, if you look at core inflation, which most economists believe is a better indicator of the path of inflation, you actually see a continued moderation, right? You see prices increase 0.3% on a monthly basis. That was a touch hotter than economists were expecting. But I can tell you that most of that was because of the continued rise in shelter or as our international audience might think of accommodation. So that continued to be the largest driver. We also saw airline fares, uh, they ticked up. So that sort of contributed there too. Uh, When you take a look over the last year or so, some of the biggest increases Shelter, accommodations, food, car insurance, those continue to rise. Uh, Energy prices, however, remember, Julia, a year ago, we were at Mm. sort of peak energy prices. And so take a look. Energy prices have fallen year over year. That is certainly good news. Although on a monthly basis, as I said, they're ticking back up. Used car prices have fallen. And on an annual basis, airline fares have also fallen. The implications of this, Julia, could not be greater. Of course, the Fed meets exactly a week from now. We will hear from the Fed exactly a week from now. The expectation largely is that they will pause, at least for now, because despite what the headline shows, this is a report that suggests that perhaps that 11 rate hikes are starting to work. They are starting to sort of funnel through the system and that perhaps that it it is actually working. And so uh, this appears to be a report that is uh, largely in line with expectations and no major surprises. Yes, like gas prices or petrol prices to those that uh, use that terminology. We're a long way from the peaks and it's the same with inflation. So one can certainly say those rate hikes uh, have made an impact. The question is, are more required? Certainly not this month, I think, based on pricing. It's what comes after. Rahel, good to have you with us. Thank you. Rahel Solomon there. Okay, straight ahead, major talks on the future of AI, but you or I won't be allowed to watch. More on that closed-door debate and reaction from the president of AI firm Cohere in around 15 minutes' time. Welcome back to First Move and to Morocco now, where time is running out for the desperate search for survivors after that devastating earthquake on the country last Friday. Almost 3,000 people are now known to have lost their lives, more than 5,000 also injured. Meanwhile, survivors in some remote villages are still waiting for government help, as Sam Kiley reports. Moroccan airmen scan the landscape below for earthquake survivors. The remains of villages have been crushed back into the hillsides, are inaccessible by land, some so remote that aid is dropped from the sky. Below, the search for survivors is turning to recovery of the dead. 
So since the day that we arrived here, we, we found more than 200 dead bodies and we, we saved uh, 153. The helicopter collects more of the quake's victims, leaving homes that no longer exist. There are many areas yet to see government help in these foothills. The further you get into the foothills of the Atlas Mountains, whether by air or on foot, the more one finds scenes like this. Locals tell us that two people were killed when these three homes were flattened. The death toll has climbed to more than 2,900 now, as the poorest, the most isolated, are getting counted. And as one gets into these remote villages, and you look back down the hillside, you get the really strong impression of the giant steps of this quake stamping on villages as it runs down the slopes. Climbing further, we come across a desperate search for buried savings. All that remains when Ahmed's home collapsed. The catastrophe killed his 10-year-old niece, Hakima. He tells me, I lost my niece, my brother lives in the house just above us. When the earthquake struck, the roof of the house flattened all the way to the ground. I went and pulled her out under the rubble. What is the future for you? He says, I want to rebuild my house, but everything has been lost. I want to stay in my village. I don't want to leave it. I'm committed to staying on my land. But with his livestock dead and Ahmed's life so shattered, the question he can't answer is, how? Sam Kiley, CNN, in Tafakacht. And our prayers and thoughts with all those involved. Okay, let's move on. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg and other tech titans are coming together for a private meeting on the future of artificial intelligence and the implications. Moderated by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Mike Rounds, who explained why the secrecy. We're trying to get right to the heart of it, and we're going to do this in, with, with 100 members of the United States Senate available for us. And we wanted them to see personally, and we wanted them to feel that it was being personally shared with them. And we wanted to respect the fact that these other tech specialists and the, the folks that are working with them on the union side, that they could really level and lay this out in front and uh, to do it in a more informal way. Pretty sure they're going to be talking benefits, risks and, crucially, guardrails needed today for technology that's already been unleashed on society. That regulation matters for all the industry players and for the public, of course, too, but including those that build the models for AI systems today. And that includes firms like Cahere, which builds and customizes the models that other businesses can use to deploy chatbots, search engines and other AI-driven products and more. And Martin Kahn is the president of Cohere. And he joins us now. Martin, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk about the summit today and what's going to be achieved. Um, why the secrecy? Is this about educating some of these lawmakers? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I think that's right. Um, I had the uh, privilege of being in the White House yesterday uh, for discussion there uh, on, on the voluntary commitments, uh, which are obviously linked to the, uh, the dialogue today. We're very, very pleased that the government is taking a proactive approach to uh, thinking about the best way to put policies in place and guardrails around AI and really balance the incredible innovation and the benefit of this 
and the free market innovation that really is something that makes the United States a, a leader in technology uh, with the careful guardrails around making sure that this is done safely and and and, and carefully. Uh, and what we've noticed, which is very, very uh, positive and encouraging, is that the government, uh, both the White House and uh, Senator Schumer, uh, are 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 taking a careful approach to to listen and and understand what the issues are and getting the inputs from a, a variety of uh, players in the ecosystem before uh, moving too quickly uh, to um, uh, to policy. Yeah, there there are people out there though that would say that we can't move fast enough given that this technology has already already been unleashed um, on the general public and I think we've all got memories of hearing some of the social media giant CEOs in Congress being asked, quite frankly, ridiculous questions, stupid questions, ill-educated questions. Um, fine, okay to learn in public, but then fast forward and actually no real cohesive regulation appears at all. Martin, what's the risk that, that this is the situation that, that happens today and from this point? Yeah, I, I can't really comment on on uh, uh, things in the past. I think based on the the discussions to date, um, we're very encouraged. Uh, I think the the voluntary commitments, as one example, that's obviously not regulation, it's not legislation, and they are voluntary. But uh, there is something quite proactive uh, about that. There's an open dialogue between the government and uh, and various uh, players in the industry. Um, one of the things that I found very encouraging is that the, the first set of voluntary commitments that the White House announced a, a couple months ago uh, was focused on consumer businesses, consumer companies, and, and big tech companies that, that really are, are delivering this primarily to, to consumers. Mm. This latest round yesterday was focused on companies that, that are serving enterprise, including Cohere. And, uh, and that was very important to uh, understand the differences between uh, AI that's being deployed for consumers and, and AI for uh, enterprise, uh, where you're thinking about the developer of the technology and the uh, developer of the applications building on top and the deployer of those ap applications to the end user. Again, that's quite a different set of issues. And then thirdly, if this technology is available through the internet, through an API, or if it's deployed privately and securely in an enterprise's own data environment, which is something that Cohere is, is very focused on. And so I think the administration now uh, is, is keenly aware, and they did reflect some of the suggested refinements that, that, that we made to the voluntary commitments to reflect the, 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 the differences along these three dimensions, maybe a bit of a Rubik's Cube of, of how one has to think about policy and, and, uh, and guardrails. And so it does seem that there's a very proactive move. It does seem that there's a lot of questions listening. And to be frank, uh, the people that, that I've dealt with really are, are sharp and, and, and understand what, what, they're, uh, what they're hearing, ask the right questions. Um, and so I, I'm, we're quite encouraged that, that, that the administration is going about this in the right way. So I know you said you won't comment on the past, but this does feel different from what we've seen in the past. Can we, can we go as far as saying that? I, I think it feels positive and encouraging. Uh, uh, I think the other, the other element, which um, uh, again I, I can't say what what happened in the past with social media, but uh, the first set of commitments that, that were made were a lot of big tech companies, and, and of course that's they're, they're essential. They they control and run the cloud environments, etc. I think what also was very encouraging was that the White House uh, was reaching out and and wanting to involve and listen to and have a dialogue with some of the innovative startups like Cohere. Um, 
our uh, uh, CEO and co-founder, Aiden Gomez, I, I believe you may have met him, uh, he was one of the inventors of the transformer, the T in GPT, when he was at Google Brain. Uh, that seminal paper, uh, called the Attention Paper, uh, all seven of those co-authors have, have left Google to form or join startups. And the same is true, I think, of other massive uh, transformations that we've seen. Even the internet in the mid-90s, you know, Google was founded 25 years ago in 98. It was a startup at the time. And so I think it, it's very important, and it seems the administration is eager to engage with innovative startups, not just the big tech giants, who of course have their own priorities and, and, and their own uh, responsibilities to shareholders. <laughs> yes. Um, we had, um Musafa Suleiman on the show recently, the, the coming wave author. And um, he was talking about not just limiting it to artificial intelligence, but all forms of technology, supercomputing, uh, quantum computing um, and, and beyond. And he said, actually, we're sort of focusing on the wrong things when we're talking about an Armageddon. What we need to focus on is the next 12 months. And he said, ban AI uh, on social media to preserve election integrity and democracy in the next 12 months. Martin, as you mentioned, you're talking to officials all the time. Is that something that you can recognize just given your experience and understanding of how powerful this can be? And to your point about even just small firms and enterprises that are already giving tools to everyday individuals to create content that could be misconstrued and misrepresentative. Would you agree with his call that we need to, in some way, and I don't and can't answer the how, ban AI in elections? use in elections. I, 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 would, I would not agree with that whatsoever. I would agree with the first part of it in that things are important in the next 12 months. I think we've been very clear as Cohere that some of this doomsday, uh, the doomsday scenarios, uh, this sort of hyperbole about the, the end of humankind because of AI is uh, just that, it's hyperbole. Uh, and what that does is it distracts from what's really important, these systems are deployed today. I mean, they already have been when we use spell check or when we use uh, translate or when we use autocomplete. That's already large language models um, in action. Mm. Uh, Google deploys this everywhere in search, in, in content moderation on YouTube, etc. And they're fantastically valuable and we all benefit. So I think it distracts from some of the things that are very important today. Things like bias, uh, toxicity, misinformation. Uh, how do we make sure there's human in the loop for certain very um, important uh, um, uh, deployments like how you use it for diagnosing uh, health issues, et cetera. Those are the things we have to talk about right now and get in place. And it's a distraction to talk about how this is going to, you know, uh, somehow have have robots uh, coming coming out of the uh, out of the earth or something like that. So I, I disagree with 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 that doomsday uh, scenario. And I think banning AI, I'm not sure what that means. It's already here. It's already being used in so many places. Like, like I said, the next time you're typing a text message and it auto completes, that's that's a large language model in action. Yeah. So I, I think um, uh, with things like election integrity, uh, that is incredibly important, something I know a little bit about from, from my, my previous uh, uh, life, my previous role. Uh, but there are already a lot of uh, frameworks in place that should continue to be in place to uh, identify any issues, bad actors, et cetera, that come up, whether that's using a, a large language model uh, or whether that's using any of uh, you know, any of, of, of thousands of other things that are already threats. And so I wouldn't say that this is something uh, 
catastrophic that just appeared a few days ago. This is something that uh, companies have had to deal with and are working very hard to to address. So yeah, I think saying but- things like stop AI is 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 uh, misguided in my mind. Well, I, t- I will defend him in that point to your point about the misinformation and the misuse of AI and creating fake content. I think it was sort of the implications of utilizing it in an election and perhaps spreading misinformation that, that he was talking about. But your point is right. You collect data. You use uh, supercomputers to build large language, large language models. You also have a human element to this, too, that, that humans go through and sort of filter the data to ensure that it's the most accurate and you minimize the hallucinations that these models produce. And my regular viewers will be quite familiar with that. Um, what would be the most important regulation for your business, whether it's beneficial or um, suppressing innovation, sort of risk and benefits potentially of innovation? Because we could get this very wrong. Yeah, well, again, I think it's quite different in terms of uh, uh, consumer deployment and over the internet or, or a private deployment for, for, for enterprise. I think the uh, the issues that we think are very important uh, and we, we are actively involved in, in, in uh, defining what guardrails and policy should be, data protection, data security is huge. One of the reasons why uh, Cohere is independent. Uh, you know, we're not we're not part of any large uh, tech uh, giant. Uh, we're also cloud agnostic, and we we deploy in a number of ways, including inside the private data environment of enterprises. And that's because mm-hmm. data security is incredibly important, especially as we think about the geopolitics today. Another reason why, uh, of course, uh, the the government is 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 eager to to be very involved in this. We have to make sure that data is protected and, and secure. Uh, the same thing with things like model weights and making sure that the the IP uh, at the at the core of uh, this technology also is secured and, and protected and not leaked uh, potentially to adversaries of the United States and uh, and our allies uh, who who could then use that to uh, uh, create their own their own technology. So data privacy security very very important. Something that, that we're very proactive with ourselves as as Cohere. I think misinformation, bias, and toxicity also very important. Um, uh, it's something that we work very actively with. Uh, Sarah Hooker. Uh, leads Cohere for AI, our nonprofit research arm, uh, and she and her team and hundreds or maybe thousands of researchers in her network uh, work all the time to think about how do we identify bias, how do we work against it. Uh, one example: if you auto-generate a um, uh, you know a job description, it often will will be male skewed just because that's. Mm. The internet will will pull information together that happens to be biased and skewed, and we need to address that and and work against that. Um, obviously, toxicity and misinformation, where some of the advancements that we've made at Cohere through things like retrieval augmented generation, so the mo- teaching the models not to know the answers themselves, maybe like the you know your annoying uncle at at Thanksgiving who knows all the answers, but you never really know if he's right. Um, he speaks with equal conviction, uh, whatever whatever he says. We teach the models to look out uh, in in and find information that they were not trained on from usually within an enterprise's very uh, secure data environment. Retrieve that information, generate uh, the response based on it, and cite where it's from. So it's grounded. 
it is it is sourced and 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 the the user can then be uh, confident that that answer is actually grounded in fact. Some of those things really, we're already doing that ourselves. Of course, we we, we don't wait for for policy or regulation, but some of those things should should become more and more um, uh, the norm or or even uh, a necessity to make sure that we're not basing decisions off false information. That makes me both um, more confident, but also more concerned because there's something essentially uh, human about sort of learning from your mistakes and. Um, arrogant uncles aside, um, you know, pulling in the data and actually uh, making a, a coherent decision about it. Uh, Martin, we will continue this conversation and we'll see what comes from these talks. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Martin Conn, president of Cahir there. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, we're live in Pennsylvania, where police have recaptured convicted killer Daniello Calvocanti after two weeks on the run. That press conference next. Welcome back to First Move. And as I mentioned just before the break, we are still awaiting that police press conference from Chester County, Pennsylvania, following the capture of convicted killer Daniello Calvacanti. As soon as that gets underway, we will take you there live. To Libya now, and a grim prospect for the people of the city of Derna, with thousands of their neighbours and loved ones, many of them thought to be still buried under the rubble or swept out to sea. The flooding that hit the city at the weekend is known to have cost more than 5,000 lives, with local officials there saying twice that number are still missing. Ben Weedman joins us now. Ben, it's just a case of waiting and hoping that those people can be found. Can you talk to us about the, the rescue efforts and what support has been provided to Libya at this stage? Well, support has been provided by a variety of countries, Turkey, uh, Egypt, Tunisia, Italy, the UAE, Qatar. Uh, one of the problems, however, is actually getting access to Derna uh, because many of the roads to that city, which is at the bottom of the mountains of eastern Libya, many of those roads have been washed out. So access uh, is very difficult. Now, we understand some Turkish uh, search and rescue uh, personnel have actually reached uh, this city. But by and large, uh, it's still very much uh, the most of the effort is being done by local inhabitants, local residents uh, who are going around basically retrieving bodies, retrieving survivors where they can. Uh, but really, the situation is dire. The video that's coming out of Derna is disturbing. You are just seeing dead bodies everywhere in the street, covered with blankets. These are bodies that are being collected in squares and streets uh, for relatives to identify them and then to bury them. But many of them have not been identified. And so these bodies are just left out in the open. It's still pretty warm there. I think it's above 30 degrees uh, at the moment. That's centigrade. And so doctors in the city are worried about the spread of disease the longer those bodies stay out. Now, some bodies have been transported to the city of Tobruk, not far from Derna, where there are refrigeration trucks available. But uh, basically, this effort is just getting off uh, the ground now. We understand that some communications has been reestablished toward the to the area. Uh, but really, the situation remains dire. Bodies are still washing up on the beaches there. 
Uh, so it's it's a real effort that uh, has has strained the abilities of the eastern part of Libya, which of course is run by a separate government based in Benghazi, uh, to the limits. So we are seeing constant appeals for international help uh, to deal with this unfolding catastrophe. Julia? Yeah. We pray more support comes. Heartbreaking. Ben, thank you for that. Ben Weedman there from Rome. Now, China is denying it's banned the use of iPhones or any other brand of foreign phone by government employees. It follows a report in the Wall Street Journal last week claiming Beijing was outlawing Apple phones because of security fears. The clarification comes a day after Apple launched the latest incarnation of its top seller, the iPhone 15. So we'll talk about both. Claire Duffy joins us on this. Let's talk about China first, because when this story broke, the concern was less about perhaps restrictions on government officials, but the fear that actually some of those restrictions might spread more broadly to consumers, given it's such a huge market for Apple. What caught my attention was the uh, spokesperson at the foreign ministry saying many media reports on the security incidents of Apple's iPhone and that the country attaches great importance to information and cybersecurity. That's not nothing. Yeah, Julia. I mean, I think Apple will certainly be breathing a sigh of relief hearing this report that the, that the country has issued no bans on Apple iPhones. Currently, China, of course, makes up one-fifth of Apple's total revenue. This is such a crucial country for this company. It's such a crucial market. And so Apple, I think, is happy to hear this, that there is no ban in place that the, company, the country is saying. But I don't think, as you said, they can breathe a sigh of relief just yet. You have a government spokesperson saying that there are many media reports on security incidents about Apple's iPhone. And of course, so much of this sort of mirrors this language where we're continuing this sort of tech standoff between the U.S. and China. And to me, it mirrors a lot of the language that U.S. officials have used in describing and explaining their ban of TikTok, which, of course, is owned by a Chinese company from U.S. government official devices. And so I think, you know, this seems to be sort of the next not escalation, but continuing indication of this U.S.-China tech standoff, Julia. Yeah, it wasn't nothing. Those comments are worth watching, I think. Um, Let's talk about charges, Claire. We need some education on why what Apple announced yesterday in terms of um, a change in charging technology is, is so huge. Yeah, so Apple announced that it will be phasing out this lightning charger, this little skinny guy, and replacing it with a much more ubiquitous USB-C charger. Now, of course, this comes after an EU rule requiring that all mobile devices in the European Union use this USB-C charger starting in 2024. But this is also going to be a huge convenience for consumers. No longer will they have to carry around both the lightning charger and the USB-C. Now I and all other consumers will be able to charge the iPhone 15, the Mac, the iPad, as well as devices from other device makers, all with this USB-C charger. And so this is going to be a huge benefit to consumers and potentially a reason for people to upgrade to the iPhone 15, Julia. Aha. Well done, the EU. And hopefully it benefits uh, Apple too. Claire Duffy, thank you so much for that. Now to Washington and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy opening a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden. His decision comes less than two weeks after he said he would not open an official probe without a floor vote. He's been facing pressure from hardline conservatives now for weeks. This appears to be his attempt to keep his members from rebelling ahead of a government shutdown deadline and from forcing a vote to remove him from his job. Lauren Fox reports. Emerging from his office on Capitol Hill, the Speaker of the House delivered this declaration. Today... I am directing our House committee 
to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Speaker Kevin McCarthy claims there are questions about whether President Joe Biden financially benefited from his son Hunter Biden's foreign business deals, and answers are needed. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption, and they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. The American people deserve to know that the public offices are not for sale and that the federal government is not being used to cover up the actions of a politically associated family. The White House firing back immediately. The truth is, is that the president did nothing wrong, that the Republicans in the House are wasting millions and millions of taxpayer dollars. House Democrats also quick to respond. There is not a shred of evidence that President Joe Biden has committed a crime. This is an illegitimate impeachment inquiry, period, full stop. While the House-led GOP investigations have yet to provide any direct evidence of wrongdoing by the president, McCarthy's move is seen by many Democrats as caving to pressure from his right flank. This is a purely political, partisan game that they're playing at the behest of Donald Trump to protect him, to distract from him, and to try to help him in the election in 2024. On the Republican side, not all members are on the same page, including one key member of the House Judiciary Committee. I have not seen any evidence that links uh, President Biden to Hunter Biden's activities at this point. I will be getting a briefing later in the week. I'm looking forward to uh, understanding more of what the Oversight Committee has uncovered. But at this point, I I have not seen that evidence. The inquiry comes as a September 30th deadline to keep the government funded and avert a shutdown looms. It also coincides with threats to bring forward a motion to remove McCarthy as speaker. We have got to seize the initiative. That means forcing votes on impeachment. And if Kevin McCarthy stands in our way, uh, he may not have the job long. And stay with CNN. We'll bring you the latest on the capture of the escaped killer in Pennsylvania. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 